to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, it's Thanksgiving week. How you doing? Yeah, I, I wish I could be festive, but I, I had a rough day today. I went to the doctor after. Actually, I left work early to go to the doctor, and he said I had to watch my drinking. So uh, I left the doctor's office and went to Home Depot to get a full-length mirror so I could watch myself drink. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's what he meant. Well, uh, th that that joke is in loving memory of one Jacob Rodney Cohen, who we all know, know and love as uh, <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield, who would have been celebrating his 101st birthday today. There oh. you go. My uh, my personal favorite of his doctor references was uh, when he told the told the doctor every time he looks in the mirror, he wants to throw up. And the doctor said, well, at least your eyesight's perfect. <laughs> Whenever. Uh... One time I went into the dispensary out here in Colorado because in this part of America we have that lovely privilege. And I did the whole Rodney Dangerfield gimmick from Caddyshack. I walked in and I said, hey, let me get two of those. Let me get three of those. Let me get five of them. And they were the one guy got it. And the rest of them were like, I don't think you can do that, sir. And I was like, kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? Look, 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 look at you, though. Yeah, I was going to say, that, buy, buy this hat get a free bowl of soup. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, when I was a kid, my, my dad had this uh, animatronic Rodney uh, Dangerfield like doll. It was about, I don't know, two two feet tall maybe, and it had a button in the base you'd press, and he would shake the tie, and his hips would move, and he told material. Yeah. And it wasn't like one or two. Like that thing had like probably 20 or 30 <laughs> minutes of material. And, and you know, you, I would sit there and just hit the button, you know, I don't know, a couple dozen times, and he would tell 20 or 30 good jokes. Oh man, I want to see that. Where's that on the antique toy show? Right. You know. Yeah. Oh man, that'd be great. Last time I visited my visited my parents, they uh they he still has that thing sitting on the table by his office. So that's worth its weight in gold. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of wonderful, Benny, we got a good show in line. We're doing another episode of Territory Talk. Why don't you tell everybody what we got on the docket for tonight? Yes, sir. And, and this is one of those territories. You know, when you think of the Mount Rushmore of territories, you're not going to think of the, the World Wrestling Association. But uh, when you really drill into it, 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 it is very, very underrated. And uh, so tonight we're going to be schooled by the Titan of the Territories, the Utant of Universal Yums, the Highfalutin Man, of the hi-hat brand, a brother from another mother, the one and only Jim Phillips. Jim, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. How's that, that for an intro? It was an intro, yes. That was an intro. Now you're about you're setting the bar high for me to follow up. Just follow up here. Let me get my do my little tie adjust here. Yeah. <laughs> next time Marco the jockeys was hitting it. It's you, always <laughs> you, you, it's you always hit every good. Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Go ahead. No, I'm just gonna say it's always good to come on and talk with you guys about the territories and just shoot the shit. With a couple of brothers, you know what I mean? It's always a good time. And what were you going to say? 
I was going to say Benny hit every everything we could say to describe you, except too sweet <laughs> to be sour. But uh, I think that uh, one, that one's taken, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe I'm not going to take. I'm not going to jump in on that one at all. How are you guys doing? How's everything going in your world? Life is good. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Very much so. Ready, ready well, to head down the Indianapolis road tonight? Absolutely, absolutely. But before we get to talking, Jim, we uh, we always have you on uh, cross promotions of sorts. Uh, you have the reason we're, we're, we're doing the WWA and, and we have you on tonight is you have an article coming out. Why don't you tell everybody about that? Yes, it dropped this afternoon. It is the wrestling territories, the world wrestling association, the uh, Indianapolis territory that we're going to talk about this evening. Uh, JP, the owner and editor in chief over there at pro wrestling stories, he always does such a great job on these things, and we work together on it. And it's something that we've been doing for a while now. And with the territories that's coming on, the Territory Talk series that's rolling through on television, it's really highlighting a lot of these. So I've had to go back and pick and choose because my series was like 23 parts long or 22 parts long. I hit them all, man. So I didn't want to be following up on something that they did. You know what I mean? So we brought the WWA, something that not a lot of people have discussed on television in these different shows, and I'm excited about that. And JP always kills it with the cover art. I love the, the art on the pro wrestling stories. Every person that was instrumental or that we talk about in the articles always highlighted on the cover art, and it's like a who's who. It's like a, a guess who sometimes if you can go – and figure out who it is before you read the article. But they're all in there, and that's all part of the fun. So, yes, let's fire it up, boys, so to speak, in Colorado lingo. I'm ready if you are. I like it. Well, you you hit, you hit said it. The World Wrestling Association, WWA, uh, what really, and Benny hit it on in the intro, one of those territories that really doesn't get its due. I mean, people talk about iconic promotions. We've, we've had you on the show before talking about, you know, Memphis, Mid-South, Jim Crockett, uh, CWF, yet the WWA had a huge roster of legendary talent, and of course, it's it's legendary leader. Uh, can you take the listeners through the origins of the World Wrestling Association? Well, if you want to go back to the true origins of the Indianapolis Territory and the WWA, you got to go back to 1950s, 1959. Through that area was uh, Billy Tom had started it up and got everything going, but it was just drawn locally. And Fred Kohler was running out the Dumont Network in Chicago. And at that time, he was one of only three networks on television. You know, that was all you got. So, and wrestling was a stable. So he was running in Hammond was one of the towns that they ran out of and taped in. And he's, I think he saw the potential in Indianapolis and, and in that state as a territory and sent down Balk Estes, which was one of his associates, and Balk Estes started working with Billy Tom, and that essentially grew from the little small NWA affiliate into the WWA territory itself. But it was super strong with the NWA in the beginning, as all those territories were. And you guys mentioned the fact that it's kind of an unknown, and that's really got a lot to do with that system in itself, because like I mentioned with the television, you didn't have all the options you got today. You, did, you weren't able to get on and watch just anything. You had to get what the old rabbit ears could bring in. You know what I mean? And then you had little, little Tommy out there on the edge of the television, twisting and turning to try and get the reception. And it was grainy at best, but you loved what you got and it was your local product. And 
but it was that locality and that almost sequestered nature of these territories that kept everything fresh to where guys could come in and out, like he discussed with the roster. So it's unknown to the wrestling fans and the wrestling world in general, but all the boys of, of the older generation, the CAC generation boys, they all know about Indianapolis and they've all got stories. Jim, something that always confused me was that there was a, a, a having a flashback to when I was a kid reading the magazines. There was also a WWA in Los Angeles, and I think in uh, Dick the Bruiser actually uh, beat Fred Blassie. I got a date of October, um, April twenty second, nineteen sixty four, in Los Angeles for his first WWA championship. So, can you? I've always been confused about the two. Were they related or separate promotions? It was a separate thing, and and I looked into that whenever I was doing the original territory run in my research back then. And yeah, it was that locality, man. You know what I mean? It was like the very there's a very slim chance of somebody going from Indianapolis and going out there and making the correlation. Like, what's what's this WWA? We got a WWA, and then it's just the you didn't have that media exposure that you have now, where people could put the one the two together, you know, and realize they were both working under the same umbrella. So, so uh, was there still a WWA in Los Angeles after Bruiser? So Bruiser won the, the title, took it back to Indianapolis, correct? I believe the WWA kept going out there afterwards. I'm not, if, if, so, I'm yeah. not if I'm not mistaken, I would have to go and do the research. I don't know the year that they closed up, but the WWA ran for a long period of time. So, yes. <laughs> but you got to look into as far as the origins of the WWA, there's there's stories and that's what makes these shows that are on television and, and writing these articles so good. There's different stories as to how Bruiser and Bill Snyder, Wilbur Snyder got the actual book in Indianapolis. Now, Ed Kohler eventually pulled out and left Balk Estes down there to take care of the business of things. And, he was the Grizzly Smith to Bill Watts for Balk Estes. He was the out one of those guys there for uh, Ed Kohler. He was one of those guys that was out there taking care of the fringe aspects of his business. And Barnett, Jim Barnett, man, like there's so many territories that this guy has had a, a hand in that cookie jar, so to speak. And Jim Barnett was working down in Kentucky and in that area. And doing some other things. I don't know if uh, if you guys are aware of the the book, The Thin Thirty, and what happened with the University of Kentucky football team and the scandal and everything that happened there. But Jim Barnett was kind of on the heels of getting out of town, so to speak, and wanting to change and do something different, and got into the wrestling business and got in with Balk Estes and started doing that because once Kohler pulled out, Balk Estes may have been a good hand, but I don't think he was that good on the book. Because Billy Lutz or Billy Luce, I think, was the booker for Ed Kohler. And he did most of that stuff up there for him. So he stayed up there on that end of things. And once Barnett stepped in, then he had the more of the book end of things, right? Until uh, Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder decided they wanted to get into the office. But both of those guys were wrestling independently in that era before that. And we can talk about that as well if you'd like. But 
if you'd like me to continue on with this little story, I can do that. I just didn't want to get ahead of the, those two guys and people not know who we were talking about. Um, I mean, if you, however you feel that you best tell the story, I mean, that's really what we're trying to do is get the, get the information out there. Well, it's just one of those things that was like a story behind the scenes. Okay, so Barnett and Bulk Estes are running things, and then this, I've heard a couple different stories about it that Snyder and Aflis, Dick the Bruiser, started running against them. But I also heard a story that Dick the Bruiser had a meeting with Bulk Estes at a hotel and basically either threatened to throw him out the window or hung him out the window should night style and said, this is our territory and we own Indianapolis. And then he retreated back to Chicago and they, they had it ever since after that. Now, how much reality there is to that story. You know how stories are passed down with the boys and in different, every, every uh, click, you know, me football guys tell the football stories, all those different things. But with it being a carny atmosphere in those days and the strong arm tactics and the under the table dealings, I wouldn't be surprised if Dick the Bruiser grabbed him by the shirt collar and dangled him on a balcony and said, this is our territory and you can get the hell out of here. You know what I mean? That's a hell of a high spot, right? Literally. Oh, man. But now I read that I read that story in the in the Louisville book that John Cosper wrote. That story is documented in there and a good friend of mine and and. A lot of Rip Rogers, I'm, I hate to name drop, but, you know, I mean, he's a buddy of mine, and he told me that story, too, as well. So it's hard to say for sure. There was who knows what happened behind closed doors. But whatever the case, the bruiser was in, and Barnett and uh, Estes was out. You know what I mean? Barnett took the money and hightailed it back toward Australia, where he opened up WCW down there. And, again, the name change correlation. Yeah, that was not world championship wrestling that most people are familiar with. But that's another territory for another day. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of going off that, when you think about territories, because you talked about expansion and deals and all, there always seems to be infighting, especially about key cities. Did that ever happen with the WWA? Well, the thing about... The WWA, you got to look at Dick the Bruiser's career as well, because whenever he was in football, he was with the Green Bay Packers and wrestled uh, and played football up and through there. So he had a name, built a name for himself in that area of the community on his football status and, his, you know, I mean, the legendary shit that he did on the field. So when most guys like him saw that there was more money in wrestling and that he could bank on his popularity and go down to the wrestling matches and make just as much money with not near the damage to his body. So I think once he saw the writing on the wall, as far as the money, he transitioned over and that would have been up in the, the Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Minneapolis area, up, area up there, which is, why you see later on with the WWA, you see title changes and different things that happen in those northern cities. He was popular in Detroit as a wrestler, and eventually he would try to go up there and go against the Sheik and run shows in the same town against the Sheik to try and take over that market. He really tried to go for massive expansion out of Indiana, and a lot of people don't realize that. He had from 
Indianapolis all the way over to the border of the St. Louis Wrestling Club territory, all the way down to the border of Kentucky, up the Ohio River and the whole state of Indiana, if you look at the old territory maps. And a lot of people claim parts of that area. You had the king down in Memphis that was coming up to Evansville, working that side of, of the area and coming through southern Illinois. And St. Louis was expanding and flexing its muscle and borders. So there was a lot of, I wouldn't say infighting, but the territory took on more than what a lot of people realized. Because once again, you're going all the way up north to by Chicago. The state of Indiana encompasses a lot more than just cornfields and stuff. There's a lot of cities within a few hours driving distance of that town. You know what I mean? And you can incorporate all those markets if you do it right. And pre-cable, that's what it was, man. You know what I mean? You didn't have a half a million fans that had access to Monday Night Raw on USA. You had what could pick up your program in the radius of each city. And those markets were defined by the city that they were in. You know what I mean? And with, yeah. Dick the Bruiser, with Dick the Bruiser being from Indianapolis area, Delphi, he brought that popularity down there and decided he was going to go in the office and take that for themselves, you know? So, and he ran with it, man. Right. And, you know, you, you talk about what people had. You have to remember, you know, when, you, when you're talking the, the 70s and, and before and some of the older areas, we were talking before the show about stuff being in black and white was you know the the heart and soul of sports in Indianapolis now is the Colts they didn't exist back then that Indiana yeah. didn't or Indianapolis didn't have a football team you know you you wanted yeah you, the Pacers and the Hoosiers but it wasn't the same <laughs> there was a much different atmosphere for consuming sports entertainment back then seeing as how we're coming into the holiday season the best way to describe Indiana from those days is to think about the Christmas story movie that is Heartland, Indiana, in that movie. That's where that's based. I'm not saying that that's what every family was like, that the Bumpuses lived around every corner and their hounds were bothering the shit out of you. I'm not saying that that. But if you look at that little slice of Americana and the way that they portrayed those people, it was pretty spot on because I come from southern Illinois in the Midwest, and you know that was pretty spot on as to what it was like. So there it was i'm not going to say it was it was all shucks backwoods cuz we weren't hillbillies but there was a lot of uh if you either lived around the main city or you had what you could get you know what i mean you didn't it just wasn't like it is today you didn't right. have the you, you didn't have the access you know <clears throat> but the thing with that the bruiser did have going for him by having that foundation through Kohler and everything they were they were able to get that Chicago product down there, you know what I'm saying, for a while and work back and forth before they finally took it over when it was Estes and, and Barnett, you know. They was you go back and you could watch, go back on YouTube and look up WWA Indianapolis Wrestling and there's all kinds of old black and white footage from back in the day when those guys were doing talent changes and stuff like that. And that even worked with how Bruiser was popular with the AWA. They did talent changes all through the 70s and 80s. Rashke had a strong run down there for a while. Jim, you, you already mentioned Wilbur Snyder a couple of times. You know, the, probably the second most famous Wilbur of all time next to uh, Mr. Ed's owner, Wilbur. Wilbur. Um, but 
I think the average wrestling fan, I mean, you probably have to be qualified for the uh, the senior citizens discount at the Golden Corral to really know who Wilbur Snyder is. So, but the guy was a premier wrestler in the '60s. So, if you could give us a little bit of a you know a rundown on Wilbur Snyder, Wilbur Snyder. Now that we're start, we're going to talk about him. He may be that missing little connection that you were wanting to know about between the Indianapolis WWA and the California WWA because Wilbur Snyder's from the West Coast area. Mostly that's where he got his training and everything and came up. He wrestled as the California Comet, Wilbur Snyder, and was actually trained partly by Nick Bockwinkel's dad, Warren Bockwinkel. So there's there's lineage to the guy there already. You know what I mean? And uh he was way big on the West Coast with the locals and fought guys and was worked with guys like Kowalski, Blassie, and uh, Snyder saw money in the wrestling man, just like Dick the Bruiser we were talking about a second ago. You know, they're like these guys, you see that so much in that 60s generation of pro wrestlers, the guys that made that transition from pro football to pro wrestling there's that list is huge you know what i mean because these guys they're getting beat up for next to nothing if if unless they're the big guy on the team unless they're the star but these linemen and these other guys are getting beat up for nothing and they're saying man i could go out here and you know what i mean do this on the weekends and make just as much money so a lot of these guys moonlit and that's how wilbur snyder got started as well whenever he was working out there with the football he was doing the wrestling on the side and he just saw the writing on the wall and saw the money, man, and realized that if he was going to have any kind of long career in sports, it was going to be in the wrestling ring and not on the football field. You know, he didn't want to end up paralyzed and shit. So he hit the NWA circuit and he wrestled all over the place. And I'm sure that's how him and Bruiser came into contact with one another. If it wasn't on the football field, I don't know. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what Wilbur, the teams that Wilbur Snyder affiliated with, but I don't know. One being in California and the other one being in the Midwest in those early days. I'm not sure if they would have played each other or not. But I don't know how the two met. But they formed a strong friendship, man, and and grew from there. But, yeah, Wilbur Snyder was a big deal on the West Coast. And that, just that name, it's got the California Comet. When I saw that, it made me smile. Well, I mean, you talk about historical names, professional wrestling, ex-football, uh, Richard Avalis said we all know him as Dick the Bruiser. I mean, he's one of the most legendary figures in the history of professional wrestling, ex-football player turned wrestler, like you said. Uh, I mean, that, and again, as you, as you reiterated, that was commonplace in the sixties and uh, oh. maybe, um, Oh, go ahead. Oh, you get Wahoo McDaniel, Ernie Ladd, all these guys, man, that were big names. You could run the list. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, you could make a, a list or a legendary federation just on 60s football players and it's almost interesting because now i'm not going to say that that's for the the entertainment end of the wrestling entertainment in sports entertainment whatever you want to call it i'm not sure that that's where that started but if you look back there in that time frame you got guys like the briscoes and the funks and other guys that were trained in wrestling and have a wrestling background and then you got all these guys the influx that are coming in and they're drawing big money Man, and those promoters, they see this and recognize it, you know, and some of those guys that have money from football are like, let me invest and get in this little business over here and stop killing myself. 
So. Well, then you also got a lot of guys who actually went up playing football in college, and instead of going to the pros, they went right into wrestling, like a Tully Blanchard. Yeah. That's a good example, yeah. Yeah. That's well, another territory on the, on the sunrise, brothers. That's another one that's coming soon, the, the Blanchard. Yeah, keep an eye. We'll talk about that soon. Absolutely. We'll have you back for that. Um, but going back to what I was asking with Dick DeBruiser, why don't you uh, give the listeners a little biography on, on him? Man, he like I said, he grew up in Delphi, Indiana, and got his start back there playing football. And the guy was just naturally massive. He had the big barrel chest, and he was just a naturally he was made for that type of stuff. And got into the football game, got in with the Green Bay Packers, and went through up there. And that's how he got his popularity going, like I say, up there in the Michigan and Wisconsin area. But yeah, they were hard hitting back in those days, man, and go out to the bars and drink. And they, if if you you should look up the Bruiser if you don't know who we're talking about for those fans out there. You got to imagine the cigar and he got his chest out. This to Dick the Bruiser, you know what I mean? He's just one of that generation. He, he epitomizes that generation of tough guys. You know what I mean? Slap you on the back and knock you halfway across the bar. You know what I mean? Those, but they're in there and. Like those old school guys, him and race and these guys that were legitimately tough. You could try them if you wanted to, but I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest it. You know what I mean? Like and Wilbur Snyder was the same way. He was trained, like I say, by Bachwinkle. So he was he was definitely a shooter. But yeah, Dick the Bruiser worked all through the NWA circuit as well. He was all over. And that's another thing that when you're talking about how these guys got their start and all that stuff, when they're running that circuit, they're working for all these other promoters. They're not just learning the business, but they're making that fellowship of the boys, that brotherhood. And later on, if you become a promoter, all those relationships are money, man. You know what I mean? Like Dick the Bruiser was, you could correlate Dick the Bruiser almost with Jerry Lawler. And Lawler worked and wrestled for WWA as well. He They worked interpromotionally and wrestled with him as the king, Jerry Lawler from Memphis, all that, the whole deal. And, uh, but they figured out the equation for their areas that they could be the main attraction and just bring in the, bring in the heels, keep rotating in the bad guys. That's what he did, man. If you look at the lineage of that world heavyweight title or that tag title, it's Dick, the bruiser, like and a heel, then Dick, the bruiser wins it back. Then it's another heel. You know what I mean? And there's a long list of guys that come through there that they took advantage of those, friendships and relationships from early on you know what i mean he brought them out so it's all about it was networking before it was networking you know what i mean before that was a thing you know right those guys were, those guys were living the life jim did they uh like mid-south had a loop the uh, cwf had a loop i think it was tampa tuesday i forgot that you got orlando miami uh you know uh mid-atlantic had a loop did 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 the WWA, WWA have a loop? We talked about their territorial borders earlier, so I would almost assuredly think that they would do the northern end. They would be the Behamond would be money up by Chicago. Then you got Indianapolis itself, Evansville before the King down there took and CWA started coming up. Evansville would have been some money. And then if you go down along the Kentucky border, you got those big cities down there too. You know what I mean? So there's absolutely going to be a loop of house shows, but your money is going to be in drawing that city, drawing Indianapolis. You know what I mean? But 
nobody's going to leave money on the table if they know they can send a crew of guys out and, and draw a town, you know, and with Bruiser knowing everybody from one end to the other, then yeah, and that's how he got into Detroit and started running against the Sheik up there too at one point, man. And then we talked about that or touched on it a little earlier. He was using his drawability basically up there for people to be like, yeah, you know what I mean? Atlas is going to draw money. Let's let him run shows. And he started running directly against the Sheik. It didn't pan out. And the Sheik won that overall because he was trying to stretch himself too thin. But yeah, it was, excuse me, let me get a drink of water. You know, not that I would ever in a million years stand up for Vince McMahon, but you know, he wasn't the only one that was really, you know, trying to spread his wings. A lot of these guys were really trying to trying to expand back then. Vince McMahon gets villainized a lot. Vince McMahon was just the guy that solved the Rubik's Cube while everybody else was trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? He had all the pieces in place that needed to be in place. It was a few guys that that tried to go big like that, but Vince had everything, man. And as far as, like, the longevity of the territories – so we touched on that earlier too. The WWA went till 1989. You know what I mean? And you stop and think about that. Everybody talks about the old school days, the territories, and you automatically think 70s, 80s. But 89, man, you're four WrestleManias deep at that point. That's WrestleMania going into WrestleMania five. You know what I mean? Right. Whenever you're talking about the the Mega Powers and WrestleMania four is Hogan and Andre, and right. the same time. The same time these that Vince is doing that, you got this little promotion down here that's still drawing money with young talent. Like Scott Steiner was one of the fucking last champions that was there, but he was over. You know what I mean? And he was legit over because of his wrestling background. That's the uh, the pre pompa pump uh, before he got involved in Steiner math. Yeah. Rex Steiner. Now the Rex Steiner name is actually getting a little cachet with the, you know what I mean, with the son over there in NXT. Back in those days, man, they just chopped it off and they were the Steiners. Yeah, don't, don't even get me started on why, how you could have someone on your roster named Rex Steiner and change his name to Braun Breaker. Like, I, I mean, Rex Steiner just paints its own marquee. That's a name that will that sells tickets just because it sounds badass. Hell yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Braun Breaker thing, but whenever he started, I thought his I thought he was running like before pre Braun Breaker. He he broke in as just his last name. You know what I mean? Like Rex Steiner, I thought I thought was 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 what he was going there. But yeah, that's an, that's that's something else. Mm. So well, yeah, you know, you talk about the geography. Um, Eric, you know, we were talking about the, the areas with like Indianapolis and then um, but Benny pointed out showing some stuff, uh, some clips earlier. There was uh, title changes also in Minneapolis and Detroit. How how far north did they did the uh, WWA go? That was during that battle with the Sheik. He wanted to get his he wanted piece of that that Detroit action. And he thought that, that it was he was going to be able to swoop in and take it. So he used his. His name cachet, so to speak, up there to draw money. And yeah, that was all part of that battle with him up there. But I think you like I say, it's you run itself too thin, you know. You can't you can it's like the same lesson that Crockett learned years later. 
you can only do so much. You know what I mean? You need to just keep your local area strong before you think about trying to jump ship and do that. And not only just to go into a new area, but take on a territorial war, especially with somebody like the Sheik, man, who owned that, owned Detroit, you know? So I don't know. It's these, the guys that have plans of insurrection based on ego is, it, it doesn't, I don't know. I don't understand it sometimes what they're thinking, you know, it's like, you look back at the history, read the stuff and it's like, man, why, why would you even try? You know what I mean? But and and I got to think they're doing it mostly on nerve because like none of these guys were really well leveraged. I wouldn't think. I mean, not that they didn't have any money, but none of these guys were millionaires. Yeah, it was ego, man. Like ego, ego will get you, and it got a lot of those guys at the end. <coughs> well, I guess uh, looking at 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 just the territory itself. I mean, we we talked about you. You've been on the show several times we've talked about the different territories and, and their brands. And that's really the, the thing is, is a lot of the territories had a selling point. You know, Memphis had the comedy and some of the goofy characters. Mid-South was the physical smash mouth. Florida with the in, intense characters. And obviously, you know, we, we went into some Florida with like Kevin Sullivan and they were willing to really push an envelope. Um, how, what would you describe as the brand or the hook for the WWA? Other than just... Dick the Bruiser alone, he was like, it was almost like the Von Erich's word of Dallas is the kind of attraction that he had in his area. People don't, it's hard to explain and unless the, you actually saw the shit on television. But yeah, he was like the Von Erich's man in that area. So if he was on, they were watching, brother, you know. But the guys that came through, he had all kinds of good heels that came through. It's especially like not only in the singles, but in the tag team ranks alone. You know what I mean? Like the original assassins. You want to talk about the tag team ranks for a second? The original assassins, Guy Mitchell and Jake Tommaso, they had the titles for a year, 65, 66. Then the next year, the Volkoffs, Boris and Nikolai come through. You know what I mean? They run it for eight months to a year. Then it's the devil's duo. Angelo Poffo, Chris Markoff, they, they're the heel tag team champions for a good nine months to a year. So it's just like this constant rotation out. One of the things that I found interesting in the research, and it's not really laughable, but it's, it's a story in itself. The Chain Gang was a, uh, a tag team of uh, the Dillons, and they were so hated that one of the members – of the tag team was actually shot or wounded in a match in Chicago. And they had to vacate the titles over that situation and come back like six months later with a different chain gang member partner. You know what I mean? And it was the Dillingers and it was that whole like, uh, mafia based bad guy. I don't, I don't think they were quite as far in as the Sicilians were in New York, but it was that type of environment. You know what I mean? And people up there, somebody took a pop at them and that's just how they, that's just how over that it was in those days, the product, that's how much the people believed. And then like that was in 1969 in Chicago. And then the fabulous kangaroos rolled through the blackjacks. You know what I mean? All these guys had time there. Did Bruiser and Crusher ever team up in WWA? I didn't see any official, like, I'm sure they teamed up 
is like a marquee draw type of thing, but I didn't see anything in the title lineage with them okay. over on the belts. Wilbur Snyder, man, that was like if the Bruiser was mostly that that heavyweight title, and that's where he was in the tag ranks too, man. He was always having some kind of belt because the belt is leverage, and if you've got that and you run the territory and you know that you've got the title, you ain't got to worry about somebody screwing you or holding you up for money or doing any kind of political BS. But Wilbur Snyder was all over those tag ranks, man, like 12, 14-time tag champion with all a myriad of different tag partners. Now, did he win the, uh, the the heavyweight championship? Wilbur Snyder early on, I believe. he, I believe so. Okay. Early on, yeah. The uh, Another time that the titles were held up in contention that I thought was interesting and another group of guys that came through the WWA that worked independently and left their mark for years was the Valiants. Absolutely. And you, when you think of the Valiants, you automatically think of New York and – old WWWF, but these guys came down through and worked with Bruiser and a tag team of Bruiser and San Martino. And the, the, the belt was held up in contention because the Bavarians beat San Martino so bad that he had to leave. It was the way they worked the angle. You know what I mean? You can like see the booking there in the title, in the title rankings. And it was like San Martino went back and then Bruiser got another partner and the Valiants had the title, but they were the Valiants held the singles championship, and for years later, you would see uh, Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. was like one of the main heels and, and managerial mind type heels in the territory all the way up to the end. He was actually working announce on some of the later 80s shows that I was watching earlier. So, the yeah, the Valiants had a huge stamp, um, but they they had a stamp on the territories in general and wrestling business in general, but definitely more so on the WWA than what people realize. Absolutely. Jim, no discussion of WWA would, would be complete without discussing Raymond Lewis Heenan, who we all know is Bobby the Brain Heenan. Um, I believe he debuted in 1965 as a wrestler, correct? And then I yep. mean, for the next for the next 30 years became arguably the most uh, gifted uh, sports entertainer uh, that, that ever lived. So um, talk about his involvement in WWA, WWA, how did he get in and um, who did he wrestle and things like that? Well, all the greats in the business that are not actively in ring related have that little backstory of how they got into the business. And it almost goes back to what they were growing up watching. You've got Jim Cornette and Louisville area, Paul Heyman, New York area, and Bobby Heenan had the same kind of thing. He was a he was a gopher. He was a driver and what you would call a handler for guys that was coming in and out of town, pick them up at the airport, run them around. He did all that for years before uh, Bruiser realized that, you know, I mean, this kid's dedicated. We're going to give him a go. And then at some point he got a chance to speak and it was all over. You know, he started wrestling in the ring, but I don't know. It didn't. Like, I didn't see any preferences as to why he finally transitioned. I'm guessing that Bobby, they didn't call him the brain, the brain for nothing. I'm sure that he probably realized he could make just as good of money running around outside the ring, having some hijinks as he could be in the ring. But he was a bumper, man. Like, whenever you watch that old footage, even before the matches, like, you, you remember seeing in the later years when he's in 
WWE getting tossed around by the warrior in the weasel suit. And but in back in the day, he was he was such a bumping manager. He I watched a match. It was Bobby Heenan and the Blackjacks versus Dick the Bruiser. And it was Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. And there was a midget and it was little bruiser. And the midget was after Bobby Heenan the whole match, man. And Bobby sold and bounced all over that ring. And it was just, it was so great. And I also watched footage of Playboy Bobby Heenan. And when I first saw it, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shit you. I thought it was Eddie Graham or Buddy Rogers because Bobby Heenan looked so different. He was so thin and he had his hair poofed up in that wave of a poof that those guys wore like that back in that day. And he was beautiful. Playboy Bobby Heenan, beautiful Bobby Heenan. You know what I mean? It was so good. Yeah. And he was at the ringside talking to the announcer. And that was the thing back in those days too. The managers would be down there talking to the ringside about their guy and putting their guy over and all the different things they're going to do. And then they would run and, go interfere you know what i mean and he was he was so great at all that if i'm not mistaken he got the weasel suit in the awa with the ganyas but i'm pretty positive that that it was in wwa where he first got that moniker weasel (laughs) when he was managing down there so that was with him his whole his whole career you know but man like what a great great talent a natural natural talent for talking and phraseology, man, and just being able to to a wordsmith on the mic if you speak, you know what I mean, so to speak. This it's it's there's few that were better than Bobby Heenan, man, and just letting him go and and listening to what he had to say. But he was such a great heel manager, and he would get in the ring and work with his guys and work those specialty matches like that. But man, I'll tell you what, watching that midget bouncer Bobby Heenan around that ring, it was great, and he did. He looked just like Dick the Bruiser. <laughs> it was so funny. Yeah, you mentioned uh, him working with Ganya. It, it's actually a good transition because he took in the AWA. Vern got, took a lot of heat for constantly being the focus and putting the belt on himself and all that. But with the WWA, their title picture was relatively simple too. Uh, the heavyweight championship. You talked about the tag team championship. Dick the Bruiser won the singles title twelve times. Uh, his last reign at 55, which back then was ancient. Now, now it's not as uncommon to see wrestlers in their 40s, 50s, and in some cases, in like Sting in the in AEW, 62, still jumping off guardrails. But uh, he also won the tag titles 15 times. His last tag title reign, he was 60. I'm wondering if there's any ever been the criticism. Uh, towards Dick the Bruiser the way there was towards Ganya, or was it because of the way they ran things outside of being the champ, it was different? If they would have had the exposure that Ganya had, you saw a lot of guys come through WWA, but I don't think you ever seen a Hogan or anybody like that. Like, Vern Ganya had that huge stable of all those guys up there, and, and if he would have had the exposure that Vern had, then yeah, I think people would have probably said the same thing about him, but you really can't to look back on it as a fan and as is a historian or a lover of the business. It's easy to point the finger and be like, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing at all, brother, but it's easy to look back and say like, this guy did that. My God, look what Nick Gulas did with his goofy son, George down in Nashville. So, but you kept the money in the house. You know what I mean? 
you kept your money, you you circled your wagons when it came to your money, and you you had to worry, legit worry about someone putting a belt on someone and then them getting like coaxed away by another territory and then to come over there and show your belt in their territory and now they own your belt and they've got access to your champ. It was it was safer to keep it amongst yourselves. And we talked about Texas earlier as well in the Von Erics. Now Fritz had the uh, had the advantage of having all them kids. You know what I mean? Tully right. Blanchard Tully Blanchard to Joe Blanchard the same way. You know what I mean? So Aflis really didn't have that advantage. You know what I mean? It was just him. So like who else is he going to trust besides Wilbur Snyder than himself? You know what I mean? So I think a lot of times when you see him taking that world title, it's not so much that he's taking it to get over, but it's a business thing. You know what I mean? Like maybe that person that he's doing business with is on their way out and he's not got nobody in line that he can trust to put the belt on. So he'll just step in and take it himself until he can bring in one of his buddies or one of his people that can play heel that he can trust enough to put the belt on and draw money with them. I think it was more about self-preservation than greed in some instances, you know? Jim, I, this is my observation. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like for the, the singles picture, you always had the heels chasing the baby face who was, you know, primarily, primarily the bruiser. And then in the tag team division, you had the baby faces chasing the heels for the championship. Am I kind of on the right track there? Yeah. Yeah. The thing about the thing about bruiser was it's almost before stone cold blurred that line and made the famous anti-hero that everybody likes to talk about. If you watch Dick, the bruiser's stuff, Dick the Bruiser was a babyface. He was over. Dick the Bruiser worked like a heel. He beat the piss out of people. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like he would, and he would do whatever he wanted to step between the ropes, go in, bust up tags, do whatever he wanted all over the ring, outside the ring, like right dead in front of the referee. You know what I mean? Just jobbing the referee out, not giving a damn. You know what I mean? But like I was watching, I noticed that earlier. I was watching the matches. Like, and it's not, obviously today's not, not the first day I've watched the matches, but I'm saying like, you notice this guy's working like a heel and he's over like a baby face. They, whenever I was talking about that match with the Blackjacks just a second ago, him and the Crusher and that little midget beat the shit out of the Blackjacks and Bobby Heenan. And it was like, for a second, it was almost like the, they were working baby face, you know what I mean? The Blackjacks and right. but they were. They was doing the standing wrist lock and all that other stuff. And then, but like the bruiser and the crusher were just, they were just flat, like stepping through the ropes and knocking the shit out of people. You know what I mean? Like it was, they did so much chicanery as far as cheating for a baby face. It was like a lot of times you see a baby face cheat and they'll throw in a something. And after they've been shit on for a while and they get that, they get that, that love from the fans. So then they're going to cheat because they're going to do anything. The bad guy's going to do. And if that's what they got to do to win, you know what I mean? They bring that psychology into the game. It wasn't like that with bruiser just step through the ropes, knock piss out of you. No, no sell you. You know what I mean? Just and work junkyard dog was kind of that way as well too. If you watch junkyard dog in mid South, he didn't do much selling junkyard dog was pretty much straightforward bunch in the mouth the whole time. But Dick, the bruiser, man, like he was, he was the baby face that worked like a heel for sure, man. 
it was fun to watch. Just, I encourage people to get on YouTube and look up this stuff and watch it. Jim, I have to ask you this. So I, I kind of fancy myself a pretty decent wrestling historian, but I have no idea who the hell Stormy Danzig is. Uh, <laughs> he, a, he won the title, a, I think, in July of 84. It's like got to be the most obscure, you know, besides Otto Wands, uh, world champion of all time. Where, where did this guy come from? His, it was Stormy Big Guns Granzig. It was, it was Granzig. Uh, okay. Yeah. The but big guns. He was that was his gimmick. Like he had the you know what I mean the big the big muscle meathead baby face that was gonna beat the hell out of the bad guys. He was a local guy, man, that was lived around that area. I'm sure he probably had a nine to five shoot job and did that too, you know what I mean? But he was one of those things that he was never over enough to get a big push on a bigger stage. But for that small territory, he was over. You know what I mean? He was a big deal for them. I remember Another guy that was similar to just big guns, <laughs> big guns, Granzig. It was uh, in the old days of the ICW, there was a guy called Mike Doggendorf. Mike Doggendorf was a football player as well, but he was over in that area because he played football for uh, Cincinnati and Louisville area. He was big there. So he was big in that part of Kentucky. So the Poffos were able to make money with him and draw with him, but you never saw him on the main, the main stage of anything. But yeah, that... The Stormy Granzig, that's just a, just a name in itself. It's got to be his real name. You know what I mean? Who comes up with that for a wrestling name, Granzig? And whenever you sent me as Danzig, whenever you, when we had talked about it earlier, I got to looking it up because I thought, well, hell, he's using the – for the timeline, I'm like, he's using the old heavy metal band to draw money. You know what I mean? Like, he's trying to, to get over on Glenn Danzig's pool, trying to use his name. But it was – yeah, it was Granzig. And I'm not sure that was probably short for something too, like the Rex Steiners with Grand Grand Ziski or Grand. You know what I mean? Who knows what it was short for? But yeah, it was interesting to to do a little research on that guy. He was he would draw, man. The fans loved him, like Tommy Rich, like style. Like the fans, they were they loved the fact when he was in the ring, man. Another guy that you mentioned earlier, the great Wojo, right? <laughs> this guy. Yeah. You hear that name, and just because of our generation, uh, our, you hear that name automatically, and our generation is going to correlate back to Barney Miller, which is a meathead guy. Woe, hope. <laughs> right. It's not this is not the same it guy. Has been I mean, this, is, <laughs> this is he is not that guy. That's a quote. I can't remember what I think it was Seinfeld that it was George's father. He was like it was he was not that guy. <laughs> so yeah, no, the great Wojo was legit, man. College athlete. Like, let me just run this down real quick of some of the research I did because I was really impressed. This guy is he would be he would have been Athlas's Bob Roop, right? Like he like Eddie Graham had Bob Roop down in the snake pit in Florida to keep guys in line and to make guys realize the business was real and that shit like that. This guy would have been that for I'm not saying he did those type of things, but he's that quality of that par of a real shooting wrestler like he started training at the age of five and began wrestling a few years later ohio state heavyweight champion 1967 68 ncaa division one title a year later after that like 69 and then from the university of toledo was runner-up the next two years after that so you're talking he was a four-time aau champion 
70, 71, 74, 75. So between 68 and 74 in the real collegiate wrestling world, the great Wojo was laying them out, man. He was on the he was an Olympic alternate in eighty to go, but you know what I mean because we boycotted all that with the Russian games and all that shit. He was one of the many guys. You hear a few stories like that in the wrestling world, actually, guys that were set to go to the Olympics but didn't make it. And Great Wojo was on that same team with Bob Roop. So you're talking about that kind of lineage, man. And the cool part about Wojo was he was such a shooter that he had the $10,000 challenge in the WWA. You can get in the ring, beat me in a real wrestling match. I'll give you 10 grand. Nobody ever got his money, brother. You know what I mean? That's cool shit right there. Did they, I mean, who would wrestle? I mean, would it be other wrestlers or what? Just... Other wrestlers or any, like any, like I'm sure that it was wide open to anybody that wanted to try and come down and take it. But it was a thing that they did is, is a, not necessarily a gimmick because he could hold his own. You know what I mean? It was like, but they did that in the WWA as a, as a draw. I remember one time, one of the matches was, it was going to be Dick the Bruiser versus the great Wojo in a steel cage. And the Wojo was putting up his 10 grand. You know what I mean? That was part of the draw. And that's how they worked part of the pool to get the people in the building, you know, but it was like that with all those things. Like you see that you saw that, they mentioned it. I heard it on a program not long ago. You would see like, oh, there's going to be a $10,000 winner to the Battle Royal, but you know damn good and well the house only drew $1,502,000. There ain't no ten grand. It, there, was, there was probably no ten grand ever, but it's just the fact that he was that confident to, to put that out there, to be like, you know what I mean? If you think you can beat me, and he was that confident in his ability to run that gimmick, you know? Dan, I'm thinking about uh, William Harding, one of our former guests, yeah. with the uh, who broke the, Bob Roop's sugar hole for the thousand dollars, and what happened after that? Wow, what a story that was! Yeah. He was he he almost had to have another match just to get his money. Jim, now, did he ever venture outside the territory of the Great Wojo, or did he pretty much stay in WWA? I don't remember seeing anything on statistics from any other territories that I researched. I think he was one of those guys that was hot in that area and he it was he was there for a while he was there through the the 80s run the late 70s into the 80s but as the he he held the title he was one of the last title holders i think that scott steiner took the title off him and scott steiner was i think the last world champion there in that territory and i think he took it off the great wojo so i'm pretty sure that he just maintained that Indianapolis status. You know what I mean? A lot of those guys were like that. They, Some of those guys just, once they got to be the big deal where they were at, they stayed where they were at because that's all they cared about. They didn't care about traveling the country, you know? Either the, either the payoffs are really good or they just, you know, we had D.C. Drake on a couple of months ago. Really, I mean, great East, you know, wrestler on the East Coast. I think he held the ECW before it was, uh, it was, it was called Eastern Championship Wrestling. He held the... Uh, their version of the world title several times, but he never really ventured outside the East Coast. Maybe same thing here that, you know, they just felt maybe they made enough money and, and it was an, an easy enough schedule where they, there was no reason to leave. Yeah, exactly. It's the comfortability, man. You're local, close to home. You're still drawing good money. And let's be honest, especially back in the days of we're talking about the 80s and even back into the 70s, the great Wojo wouldn't have had the pull that 
that the bruiser had the bruiser could walk into any restaurant or any place in town and drink and eat for free you know he could you know what i mean just like all right. those old school, all those old school great wrestlers but if you reach that legendary local status enough i'm sure that the great wojo could walk into his favorite haunts and not have to worry about a bill you know what i mean like stuff like that is a draw to make you like those are fringe benefits that you don't get out on the road mate you're not necessarily unless you're big you know what i mean unless you're like top three match on the card if you're a jobber out there, you're not getting no free beers at the Holiday Inn bar. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And you don't, I mean, he's, sorry, Dan. No, I was going to just say Dan. that, uh, you know, a lot of these old guys, like we're, you know, we're friends with Davey O'Hannon, John, Johnny Rods on Facebook. But you don't, uh, that guy, you know, he's really kind of faded into oblivion. Like, yeah, I, I know he's still alive, or at least I think he's still alive, but you, you, yeah. you don't see anything about him on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, but Great Wojo was, he went on to be a wrestling coach, and his son, actually, I believe, is is a, is a high school wrestling coach still, from what I saw. But, yeah, a lot of these guys, like, the the business claimed him, you know what I mean? Like, Dick the Bruiser died from having, blew, his, blew the aorta, you know what I mean, the vein out in his neck from working out he was working out with his kid and blew his blew his blood vessel in his neck and that's what took him out you know what i mean like and you can just almost by the way dick if you dick the bruiser that was what he was classic for you know what i mean the neck like the tree trunk with the veins popping out i'm sure you know what i mean it was like instant stroke out gone you know and a lot of these older guys are all heart related you know from stuff that they did just fucking gone and that's that's the reason that we need to be doing what we're doing. And I'm so thankful for you guys allowing me to come back time and time again and talk about these territories and stuff. I don't claim to be the, I don't claim to be the end all be all of knowledge on this stuff. I'm a fan at the heart of it, just like everybody else, man, but I'm a fan of the business, not just any one territory. I've got my favorites like everybody else, but it's different when I, I don't know when I watch these, especially these old territorial matches, it's like watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in the ring if they're doing it right. You know what I mean? And you don't see that nowadays. And I was watching it earlier when my my girlfriend's, I'm at my girlfriend's house just uh, north of Denver about an hour for the holidays. So I was watching earlier today and her little granddaughter, she's like four years old, man. And she comes running in and it was the match where the midget was, <laughs> where the midget was on there. Oh, she, she, she had was, a pop for that. Yeah. He was fascinated with the midget. She goes, look, she goes, that little man. And I kept, she, she kept calling him a baby. And I said, no, I said, that's a man. Said, that's a little, she goes, that little baby's running all over the <laughs> ring. And she was instantly drawn in. She loves mid South. You know what I mean? It's like, maybe she meant baby face. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was hilarious man yeah that yeah that little the yeah the mini uh, the mini bruiser he would jump up on the second rope and hold the top rope and bounce up and down to get the ref's attention and those guys would run in the ring and beat the hell out of the blackjacks it was something else man yeah it was good but like it's just what the reason i brought her up it's because it's not necessarily the innocence in the eyes of a child but it's like these younger fans that have no knowledge of the territories whatsoever, have no clue of what that is, are still drawn in by the drama of it, drawn in by the story of it. In the case of the midget, drawn in by the awe and pageantry of the craziness of it all. You know what I mean? Like, And it's being lost more and more. I'm glad to see that these shows are coming out, territory talk and all this other stuff that they're doing. It's a wonderful thing. I mean, I'm loving it personally. You know what I mean? It's great for the territories, but... 
and anybody that writes about that stuff. But <clears throat> it needs to be preserved and try and pass it on to these younger kids and this younger generation. You know, I am very thankful for the opportunities you guys give me to come on here. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up, then I guess the uh, fitting end, the final question. Where does the WWA rank among historic territories? Like, how, how should history, history, I mean, you mentioned wanting to remember it. How should history remember it? It should be remembered as a, as a backbone for their area. You know what I mean? They brought money into their town, and the Bruiser brought guys in and built that town up and kept it going long into the face of the national expansion of Vince McMahon and the WWF which means it shows how much those local people loved that product. You're not going to stay in business unless you got people in the seats and you got money coming through the till, you know what I mean? So for them to be still running in 1989 and drawn, it just shows what they were bringing out and how much those people there loved it. And it was, it, if you look at how territories should be remembered, they might not have had popularity in the national pool of a mid-south or a wwf they might not have made the money of a championship wrestling from florida but the people that went through there and cut their teeth there rip rogers was one of the first i he wasn't mentioned in the article but he he had a cup of coffee there and it was he's from indiana and you know i mean that's where he got his start and one of the could possibly hands down one of the greatest minds for ring psychology still alive today you know what I mean? And that he didn't learn that by accident. He learned that by traveling the roads, but he came out of that product. He grew up as a fan of that as a kid. You know what I mean? So it's what they did for their local area sometimes more so than what they did for their own benefit and their own popularity. And I think the WWA was that way. I think it was strong for Indianapolis and did a lot for them. You know, like Billy or like Eddie Graham did for Florida, you know? Bruiser was strong with his community and stuff. Yeah, it was it was good for them in that time. It may have been a hiccup for everybody else that didn't have exposure to it because it wasn't on a national big huge stage like a Chicago or a New York City or something like that, but it doesn't lessen their impact. Nice. Benny, uh, any final thoughts from you? Yes. You could never get away with a name like Dick the Bruiser in 2022, unless you're a porn star. <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered if it was if we were going to touch on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Should have should have ended where we were. <laughs> you if if you go back and watch, I encourage everybody. You guys too, go back and watch those videos, man. Like and watch his wrestling style. It was Austin before Austin. It was the anti-hero. Before there was, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying he coined that style or he created it, but he used it to his benefit, man. And he was over with it and, and learn about it, man. He had a big cigar hanging out of his mouth. And when I say barrel chested, I'm not kidding, man. I don't know. that He had to have had tailor-made suits. There's no way this guy was buying off the fucking rack. He's got a chest like a gorilla. You know what I mean? Famous for those guys are famous for carrying around beer kegs on their shoulders and and that gimmick up there in the bars and whatnot, you know? So, yeah, legit. But, any of these territories, though, like, you, you got to go back and watch a few of the episodes because then you kind of get into the flow. Like, you know, you watch uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida, like four or five episodes that include Kevin Sullivan 
and you know the the, the purple haze and Bob Root mate was Maya Singh, I think his name was, and yeah, you know, Maya Singh, my yeah, yeah. yeah. you really kind of get an idea of the flavor, like you know Mid South. I, 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 my favorite Mid South clip is when Jim Cornette had the, the, the they're celebrating the the Rock and Roll Rock and Roll Expresses, uh, no, the the Midnight Expresses winning the the Mid South Tag Team Championship, and the Rock and Roll Express dumped him in the cake. Yeah, man. And then Watts oh. slapped the living shit out of him. And like, man, did Cornette sell that slap? That was a legit <laughs> slap. That was... The television from the 80s is pretty good with WWA. When they when uh, Dave McClain was doing the announcing, I don't know, did we touch on that on the show about the announcers with uh, Al Messicker was the original announcer back in the day that most people probably remember. Big guy with the glasses and that burgundy blazer not like the the bright blazer that mcmahon wore by any means but he had that that signature blazer but dave mcclain took over as announcing later on and was affiliated with uh, glow and then later the the pow the powerful women of wrestling and dick the bruiser was bankrolling a little bit of that as well you know what i mean trying to help mcclain get off the ground with that but i touched on that with the female territory. I did a spot on like glow and pow and different female territories. So there was only a couple of them, but they were out there. But you know, as a, as a wrestling fan an old school wrestling fan to think that there's like 30 of these territories and like each one of them has their own storylines and their own stars and their own style. And it's, it's as a wrestling fan, it's a great thing. Also. Yeah. I was like these, the shows that are on the television right now, the territory talk, um, not so much the Young Rock. I've got issues with that show, but the <laughs> the territory talk and and the the Vice Dark Side of the Ring and the YouTube channels and different things you have access to. That stuff is where you're going to find your real history. Listening to the people that were there that lived through it. That's what's great about that territory talk series they're doing. It's a roundtable. You know what I mean? And those guys, every time they have them on there, it's like, oh, there's, you know what I mean, there's the grappler, there's Lynn, there's, you know what I mean, you, after you've met these folks, it's like you hear the stories. There are very few stories that's come across on the series yet that I hadn't heard, but man, there's some funny stuff on there, and it's well worth a listen. Well worth a listen. You know? Absolutely. Well, once again, another great territory talk. Always good to go back to the history and Jim, like you said at the top of the hour, the uh, article Pro Wrestling Stories, part of your great series. Uh, you dropped a teaser earlier. Any uh, any chance you might might hint at what the next one is? Well, I've got some stuff in the works that's non-territory related. That, that it is territory related. I've lined up an interview with one of the great stars of the territory days, and it's going to drop soon. And I got a kayfabe you guys and give you the, the little teaser it was a masked a masked wrestler that's all i'm gonna say There's not a lot of those still left around so i've got an interview lined up with him we're going to talk about his run through a couple of different territories and i want to highlight a couple of heels i wanted to, i used to have a series called going to heel that's not what this series is uh going to be called but i want to pop a heel or two but yes we're going to be going to the blanchard territory and we still have a couple of things in Texas to take care of. We haven't talked about that. I haven't released the article yet on the Von Ericks, you know. So there's different places to still hit Portland. It's tricky, though, because like I said earlier at the, at the top of the show, 
with these television shows that are being released. I'm trying to release territories that I've written about that maybe aren't on the television set. That way it doesn't look like I'm just telling a story that I heard last week. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Trying right. to bring some, something original to the table. So yes, there is. We do have, I do have Portland. I do have all those things. I, they're all going to come out later in the run. And we're going to finish up with a huge spot on Mid-Atlantic in the WWF. This is way down the road. But in the original series, the WWF alone, from the Gold Dust Trio to modern times, I think there was like 16 or 18 articles that made up that territory alone. Full articles. So those will have to be broken down into like a trilogy of timelines through those years but yeah it's exciting stuff you know what i mean i like where the the wrestling business is right now there's a thirst for knowledge about the old days and the more young kids we can get in front of some old school content the better off the business will be you know yeah can't go wrong with that well check it out uh jim phillips article pro wrestling stories.com and uh, again, Territory Talk is always great to go back. Like the tagline of the show says, Benny, celebrate wrestling's storied past. Got it. So, and, and that's what we're here for. And we always love these conversations. Jim, thanks again for your time. We'll definitely have you back on for Jim Phillips and ProWrestlingStories.com. For the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spouse Channel. Have a good night, everyone. And we will see you next time we're in the ring. Peace, Happy Thanksgiving. Us.